thank the minister in session for the invitation to come along to preach once again in Lisburn. I'm, I might be new to some of you, but there's a lot of old faces out there that I'm not new to because my face is old as well. Um, it's a joy to be back again with the Lord's people. I want to thank you also for your many prayers for my wife, myself, my family during her illness and after the Lord took her home a year ago, June 10th. First year was extremely difficult. Only those who have lost a spouse really understand what that's like, and we wouldn't expect you to understand, but uh, I know that God's people were praying for us. He answered prayer and bore us up through what was a very difficult time, and I um, thank you for praying. And keep on praying, please. I still need God's help. I uh, don't get many opportunities in my country to preach. Churches are so few and they're so far apart. So whenever I came to Ulster, I had a full schedule. I don't know how many times, 24, 25 times I preached, but that's been rest for me. It's been refreshing for me just to get back into the pulpit once again. And it is my privilege to be here again, to open up God's Word and to speak to you. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down through to verse 14. That's all here, God's inspired and infallible word. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let, let it rather be healed. 
Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And God will add his blessing to that reading for his own glory. Let's bow our heads, please, in a word of prayer. Would you bow your head and your heart? Ask the Lord to come alongside you. That's the one you need sitting beside you in that pew. It's the Lord. Ask him to speak to your heart this morning. The eternal God and Father in heaven, as we approach the preaching and the hearing of the word, we confess our deep need of the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who gave this word so long ago and still speaks with that voice that wakes the dead, that wakes the sleeping, slumbering believer, that strengthens the grace in our hearts, that gives us that sight of Christ that we so desperately need. And Lord, we pray that from the outset there will be a real sense that Thou art in this place. We would want to know that voice from Thy Word saying, Be still and know that I am God. We cannot work this up. We dare not try. We want not to try. But Lord, just Thou speak the Word, and all will be well. Silence, we pray, the voice of hell. Corral the wandering thoughts. Give now that desire from within to hear what God the Lord has to say for this meeting. In Thy Son's name we pray, Amen. And amen. My text is found in verse 14, at least part of that text. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. The text I'm going to be using for this four-sermon conference, I guess, a mini-conference, you might say, are those words, follow holiness. The theme, as most of you know, I imagine, that I want to deal with over the next number of meetings is the Christian's pursuit of holiness. The great interest of any and every child of God, the great concern that must permeate the life, is that pursuing holiness. The word follow and Verse 14 is an interesting word. It might seem a bit innocuous to you, but it's a very intense word. It means to strive. There is this eager and earnest seeking. That's the picture. Eager, earnest striving. It's the same word that occurs in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm striving for that. I'm giving all of my energy toward that goal and that mark of the high calling of God, if you look at it in context, is just exactly like Christ. Perfect likeness to Christ. That's what he's striving for. He's earnestly uh, putting everything he has into that. That's his big goal, to be, as we like to say popularly, like Jesus. important 
because he says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul states that the reason God actually chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world was that we should, that, here's purpose now, in order that, we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. That's the purpose of why you're one of the elect. Holy, blameless. It means without blemish. Blameless. He goes on to say in chapter 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We're now to Calvary. We're now to the cross. We're now to the suffering and the bloodshedding of Jesus Christ. Why was he there? Here's what he says. In order that he might sanctify and cleanse it, that it should be holy and without blemish. That's a big statement. Christ died. He went through all that he went through. Yes, to deliver us from hell, to bring us to heaven. But don't miss the point is that we should be holy and without blemish. Holiness of life is a big deal in the mind of God. It's not an option. It's not something you can just, well, I'll give a little effort here and there. I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll go Sunday morning, as a matter of fact, and I'll go Sunday night. And maybe I'll even go to the prayer meeting, but... I'll read my Bible once in a while, but a real earnest, eager striving for holiness of life. That's why the Savior died. Paul echoes this truth in Romans 8 when he states in verse 29 that God's people have been predestined. A lot of people run away from that word predestined or predestination, and they shouldn't no more than they should run away from being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Predestined, yes, predestined for heaven, that's very true, but we have been predestined, Paul says, listen, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Yes, we have that place in heaven, it's secure by this eternal, unchangeable decree of God, who will always have his way. Never mistake that. Never think otherwise. God will always have His way. But what Paul says in Romans 8 is that we have been predestined to be conformed, literally, to have the same form and image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Simply put, we have been predestined to be holy. What did the father of Zechariah say in Luke chapter 1 verse 75 when he spoke of the reason God had finally sent Christ into the world that, here's the word purpose again, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all days of our life. I say again that the Christian's great interest in life, that must, it must rise above every other interest in your life if you say, I'm a believer, that I'm a child of God, your main interest must be pursuing, striving for holiness. The trouble that plagues the people of God in this area, so often that the big pursuit, it seems to be, that they have in life is happiness and not holiness. 
But you see, that's what the lost do. They're constantly striving for, earnestly seeking happiness. A mad pursuit. And this, the, 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 it's strange, but it's not when you look at how they think. The, the, the very things that they're seeking to make them happy are only making them more miserable. Because whatever pleasure sin may bring, it's only for a season. But sin is always going to bring guilt. And guilt always brings sadness. It brings misery. It takes away the happiness. You can't be guilty, child of God. And I'm going to say more of that throughout this little mini-conference. You, you can't be loaded down with guilt because of your sin and be happy. And so you'll find your own self looking for ways to be happy, but you're not dealing with the problem that's causing the misery. In the fir- you're not really striving after giving yourself to holiness and Christ-likeness, but doing the very things that are getting in the way of your happiness because they're actually compounding your sin problem. So even Christians can be found looking in all the wrong places for happiness. But whenever the child of God begins to strive for, pursue, earnestly pursue holiness, likeness to Jesus Christ, as much as the grace of God enables you to think like the Lord, to talk like the Lord, to respond like the Lord, then there you will find happiness as part of the package. And it's interesting that, that, that God actually uses this desire He has put within us because the, the reason why the lost want happiness and the reason why Christians want happiness, why do you think that is? Because God has put it within us. He's not put within us a desire to be miserable whether saved or lost, he's put within us a desire to be happy. And so the lost pursue it eagerly, but they go down the wrong path. But he so often in his word uses that desire for happiness to motivate us to seek the right things. You know the Sermon on the Mount quite well. But what does each promise really begin with? Blessed are X, Y, Z that follow. Blessed, happy are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So the fact of the matter is that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ declares dogmatically that anyone who is saved has been, has been irreversibly blessed by God. We have already been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm sure most of you could quote that off by heart. We have been delivered forever from eternal damnation in God's hell. Forever. They had a disease. A disease that no man could cure. And God sent His Son to the utmost lengths to not only supply the remedy for that disease, but to apply the remedy for that disease. And when the Holy Ghost came to you, He applied the remedy that Jesus Christ had purchased on the cross. And you were healed. It wasn't temporary, it was forever. You were healed by the great physician. You were justified by grace through faith in His blood. 
And you were adopted, you were placed as sons in the family of God. And God never goes back. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't reverse those things. You're not going to be one day in the family of God and then one day out of the family of God. Right. Thank the Lord for that gospel truth. But even though Christ's people have been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, they still find themselves wondering why they don't enjoy more of this blessedness, this happiness. How come? Why is that? How come we aren't more joyful? How come we don't go through a day without even lifting a song to God. Why? Why did you come through those back doors this morning unhappy? Come, let's be honest. Oh, you sang the hymns. You're here. But this blessedness, this happiness, The real issue beating at the heart of this dilemma is this ongoing problem we have with sin. Heaven is going to be a place of sinlessness. My wife is enjoying perfect happiness today. I can't imagine what that's like. To have not a cloud in the sky, not a sorrow in the heart, not one ounce of guilt, not one degree of fear, but that's how it is for those in heaven. And you see, brothers and sisters, what we need here is a little more heaven on earth. But what gets in the way? It's sin. Tell me, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, I don't do that, but any of you husbands and wives had a little spat before we got out to church this morning? I don't know, did you? And I can tell you, if you didn't settle it before you got to those doors, you're not a happy camper right now. And you can't be because sin's really getting in the way. Sin's the problem. We all have this lingering sin principle in our souls. The sin that dwells in our flesh, Paul says. And it wants its way whenever it can get its way. Your flesh, my flesh, wants to do its own thing, and that its own thing is going to be contrary to the way of God, the way of holiness. And it always makes the heart of the believer miserable. So while we have indeed been predestined to holiness, it's also true that we have this solemn responsibility to strive for purity of life. Purity in our thinking, purity in our words, purity in our actions. Purity. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. It's essential because it is the very essence of living the Christian life. It must be an earnest pursuit. Because the word means eagerness. But it also must be 
and will be an endless pursuit in every Christian. The work that God began of changing us into this likeness, to this image of his son, Jesus Christ, he has promised to carry it on until the day Christ returns. He which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. And it's going, in, it's going on in the life of every child of God. But it goes on at different rates in uh, different Christians. Why do some, after a relatively brief period of time, seem to excel in holiness? And some have been saved maybe for 10, 15, 20 years, and that one who's been saved for five is advancing. Now, I get it. I mean, God is sovereign. I understand all of that. But man's also responsible for this part, this part we're going to be dealing with, pursuing holiness. If, if there wasn't a responsibility on our part, brothers and sisters, there would not be these commands to strive after, to earnestly seek it, to press towards it. That's something we're supposed to do. Because it is God which works in us both to do and to will according to his good pleasure. Now, what I want to begin with this morning, and it's just going to be the beginning, I want to deal with the path to holiness. The path, because it is a path you have to walk down. And the the path is all important. If you walk down the wrong path to holiness, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to achieve that growing that you could, that you want to, if you're pursuing the wrong path. You go down the wrong path, it doesn't lead you the right way. So what I want to start with today is the, the path to holiness. I, I, I can think of no one truth in this light of what we're dealing with that needs to be sounded more today than any other time. The path, what is the right path to holy living? And are we pursuing it? Are you pursuing the right path to purity? I'm well aware that the devil is always proposing his own paths to keep people off the biblical path to purity of life. So ask yourself the question, am I on the right path? Holiness is going to be absolutely essential to our enjoyment There's the happiness. It's essential to our enjoyment and our usefulness to God in the Christian life. Our chief end is to glorify God, as you know quite well, and to enjoy Him. Now there's happiness. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And the holier we are, the more we glorify the Lord. The happier we are, the more we glorify the Lord. God has intertwined those two truths together. As much as you and I may want to be instruments in the hands of God to be used, to be used in your family as a mom, as a dad, as a person, a member attending this church at your work, as much as we might want to do that, in the lives of the saved and of the lost alike, that's how, that's how church life should be. Believers helping believers in the walk and the pursuit of holiness. Not being a deterrent. 
not living in such a way that it's really a distraction. It's leading people away from that likeness to Christ. But you want to do that and you want to be used in the lives of the lost around you. Then what Timothy says is important. 1 Timothy 2 verse 21. If, 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 if a man therefore purge himself from these. That is the, 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 the uncleanness. The sin. Cleansing himself from these. He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. It prepares him to make him useful. So I guess my question now is, is that what you want? To be useful? Or would you be just content to, you know, get a nice job, make your 40, 50,000 pounds a year, have a comfortable home, few obstacles as possible, and get a nice retirement plan when it's all said and done and live comfortable the rest of your days? Or do you want to really be used of God in the lives of other people? What's it all about? I personally believe there's many a believer that is living under a cloud of defeat and frustration regarding their own spiritual progress because they're not on the right road, not on the right path. Therefore, before I get to, I won't get to it this morning, tonight, but this morning, so so you know what that means, of course, since I tell you I can't get to the positive side, you've got to come back tonight, right? Everyone hear that? And that will tell me, are you really eager about pursuing holiness. I, I, I need to deal with the negative side first. To set down a few things about what this path of holiness is not. The way that we are not to think about it and, and therefore to pursue it. What it is not. Number one, let me say first that God's method, God's way, God's path for us to obtain holiness is not the law of God. It is not the law of God. Be dead on sure that the law of God is still God's moral standard for holiness. No denying that. It's God's law that actually defines what holiness should look like in our life. Never accept the dispensational notion that the Ten Commandments were something Jewish for the Old Testament saints, but not for the New Testament saints, as if it has, they have no bearing on the life and the witness of the New Testament church. That's utter nonsense. It's heresy. I'll tell you point blank. It's heretical to think. But the sheer fact of the matter is that the law of God cannot, it cannot, bring you into a greater likeness of Jesus Christ. In itself, it cannot do that. It cannot produce holiness of life. It will tell you how you should live. It will tell you what pleases God and what displeases God. It will tell you what God hates and what God loves. Paul says... In Romans 7, that by the moral law of God, sin 
became exceedingly sinful to him. When the Holy Ghost used the law of God, remember Paul thought, touching the law, I'm blameless. You couldn't lay a handle on me. But one day the Holy Ghost opened his eyes to what the real truth, the real meaning of God's moral law was about. And then sin became exceedingly sinful to me. He saw the sin. It opened his eyes to see how wicked he was, how unrighteous he was. But the law had no power to purify Paul. There was no power in and of itself to purify his soul. And that's why I believe it's so tragic that so many of God's people are trying to obtain more holiness of life by focusing on the law. Focusing on the law and their sin with the hope that it will produce a better pursuit of holy living. And so they are thinking that I see the law and I look into that law and it will bring out my sin and it will make me feel awful and I'll cry and I'll weep and that will just be a wonderful experience and that's going to produce holiness. No, it's not. Working in tandem with that is the approach of many preachers, at least in my country, who constantly, constantly preach on repentance. It's almost like a Johnny One note. To spur, they think, God's people on to holy living. It's hammering, weak, after week, after week, after week, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? All that's wrong with you. You need to repent and repent, and then you'll find happiness. I'm not decrying. You must, you, any minister worth his salt is going to preach, thus saith the Lord. There, there is a, a place to rebuke and to warn and to exhort and to follow God's law. But brothers and sisters, if that's all you hear continually, 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 well, I'll say more about that in a moment, but... It's not the path to holiness. It informs us of what pleases God and what displeases him. But the vast majority of the Lord's people, I think, are far more plagued with what they know is sin in their life than they are about the ignorance they have about sin. Yes, you preach the word and the Holy Spirit comes and he opens up the mind and exposes sin. Well and good needs to happen. But I think it's the sins that we are well aware of that give us the problem. Spurgeon, in one of his morning devotionals, I think it was morning, he said this. Satan seeks out sins wherewith to accuse us. Our enemies seek them out that they may lay them to our charge and our own conscience seeks them even with a morbid eagerness, unquote. 
our own conscience a morbid eagerness. Notice he said morbid. The law of God must be taught, it must be expounded and applied to the daily walk of a child of God. You preach through the word of God, that's going to happen. Obedience to the Lord's commands is foundational to any definition of holy living for a child of God. But bombarding me, the Lord's people, with what I ought to do and what I ought to be without stressing how I get there, without opening up the gospel to enable me to have the right thinking and the right living so I can actually pursue holiness in a biblical way and not drive myself around the bend with guilt and guilt and guilt. That's a tragedy. It's a real tragedy, but it's so common. It's trying to obtain holiness through the law. When all the law can do is expose sin and clarify sin and condemn sin and reveal what true holiness looks like. You see, when we say we want to be like Jesus, that's a phrase, a catchphrase, it's so common. I want to be like Jesus. What are you talking about? Really, what are you talking about? Jesus Christ came into this world and lived the perfect life. What was the perfect life? It was perfect obedience to the law of God. Perfect obedience. So when you say, I want to be like Jesus, what are you saying? I want to obey the law perfectly. That's a desire. But it's not going to be the law that's going to do that for you. It doesn't have the power. It doesn't. That that, that approach, going down that path, does not work. I have been there and I've done it. If such a path is followed, it will produce one of two kinds of Christians. Either Christians who are frustrated and they are defeated because they're trying to use the law to do something it could never do, was never designed to do in the first place. Paul refers to that in Romans 8, does he not? What the law could not do through the weakness of the flesh. Or... Christians who are full of self-righteous pride. It has this way, if you go down that path, it has this way of producing a a well-doctored Pharisee. And it's always looking down the nose at somebody else who doesn't keep the law of God as good as you do. Because you're on the wrong path. It doesn't work. In Romans 7, you find Paul struggling with that very problem, how to fight this battle he has with the sin in his own life. The law of God only increased his awareness of how far he fell short of God's demands, and so he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? It is his answer that points us to the path. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his answer. To his striving for and finding himself sending me. And there's this battle. And I feel like I'm losing the battle. Send the things I would do. I do not. You know. Did you have that spat with your wife or your husband this morning? 
You didn't want to do that, but you did it. You didn't want to say those cross words to your children, but you did it. You got harsh and rough with them, and you shouldn't have done that. And you know you shouldn't have done that, but you did it. Because why? There is sin that dwells in you. And there's always this battle going on. But hearing me tell you about, you shouldn't have done that. You know you shouldn't have done it. You know you shouldn't have had an argument with your spouse. You know you shouldn't have badmouthed another Christian. You know you shouldn't have had that lustful thought, right? But you did it. Me telling you, you shouldn't have done it. You need to do better. It's not going to cut it. I've just said, here's the law. You've disobeyed. Now do better. It doesn't work. Christ is the key to holiness. We're going to see that. Christ is the key to holiness. You know, he, he, think about it. It was Christ who was the one that cleansed your heart from all sin initially at salvation. You were forgiven. All debts paid in full. And he's the same one, and it's the same grace that comes to us and deals with this remaining sin that dwells in us. It's not the law. Secondly, holiness must never be thought of as merely an experience, but always as a state. Or, if you will, a condition. Paul said again in Romans 8, 29, that God's great purpose is to change us into the image of His Son. A transformation, a transforming process. Therefore, holiness is of necessity a matter of our condition of our state. Not an experience that we may enjoy for a while and then lose. You you ever heard people, Christians say when somebody did something, they really didn't like it and they got mad and they let fly? Uh, I just lost my sanctification. No such thing as losing your sanctification. It's a state you've been brought into. Yes, it's an ongoing work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, but it is a state that you can't lose. To use the words of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, holiness is about this condition of growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Every child of God here this morning is in that condition. A condition of growing in grace and getting more of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ doesn't involve experience. It certainly does. Christians do have wonderful spiritual experiences which help them and further them along in this pursuit of 
holiness of life. At times, God has, and He will still, through a gracious work of the Spirit, grant a believer an unusual experience of nearness to God or of the love of Christ, whatever it might be, that whatever gospel truth He uses. And you will read of these experiences in the lives of the eminent saints of church history. You'll read about them in Whitfield's life and Edward's life and Spurgeon's life. Yes, those things happen. They will deepen our hatred for sin and compel us to strive more and more after holiness and deepen our hunger for righteousness. And I thank God for such experiences. It would be my prayer that that will be the experience of this church in this little time of Bible study, that God draws near to you and God draws near to me and opens our eyes up to see things we hadn't seen before. And he moves upon us and we walk away from this little conference saying, Lord, I want to be holy in a way I've never had before. That I've got a hunger for God I've never had before. That my prayer life has been transformed because there, there is a path to holiness and, and it's been shown to me and that's what I want to walk down, Lord. That I'm, I, I'm sick and tired of the humdrum just eking out a, a Christian ex, existence in this world. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not die to save us just from sin and from hell. We're not here to just eke out, just to get by the day and get through the day. He came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. There's a life to live that you and I haven't lived yet, but it can be sought, it can be enjoyed. I pray God to give us that. But totally apart from that, totally apart, if that never happens, there is a pursuit of holiness that we can enjoy and that will bring change. It's a state, it's a condition that we have been brought into by the grace of God. And it can't be taken from us. You can go ahead and plot any Christian's life on a graph and there'll be highs and lows and highs and lows. But I'm going to tell you something, you put it on a graph, it's going to be like this. High, low, high, low, high, low, high, low. It's going upward. As blessed and beneficial as those experiences are, they are not sanctification itself. They promote the believer's holiness. They encourage it. But when God's people have... have uh, confused experience with a state, experience with a condition, then it has opened them up to discouragement and to defeat and to anxiety regarding the state of their soul. And they began to wonder, am I saved? Whatever the experiences that God's people enjoy, the work of God in sanctifying them goes on. A third negative. We must not view sanctification as something that is received. 
Some have described this path to holiness in these words. I'm quoting. Just receive the gift of sanctification and it's yours. Unquote. Just receive it and you'll get it. John Newton thought like that in his experience, in his sanctification. He wrote a poem. I won't quote it all. I asked the Lord that I might grow in love and faith and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Hmm. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed to aggravate my woe. Blasted all the fair designs I'd schemed Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Oh, he just... Do it, Lord. That's the wrong path. The path to holiness is a path of progression. It's a progressive work in every child of God. It's a work, it's not an act. Regeneration, the new birth, is an act. Justification is an act, not a work. But this sanctifying grace gradually worked out in our lives. And since it is a work, you can't receive it all at once. You can't, oh, I'm sanctified. The Lord sanctified me last night at the meeting. (laughs) It's nonsense. If this can be received all at once, then those who teach the doctrine of sinless perfection that a Christian can reach a state of sinlessness living in this life, they're absolutely right. But they're absolutely wrong. The testimony of Scripture, this holiness does not happen suddenly. There's no shortcut to it. You can pray and wait for the second blessing all you want. You, you can wait, for the, as we would say, till the cows come home. But it doesn't work like that. It's not the method that God lays down in His Word for Christians to pursue holiness of life. Don't misunderstand me. There's going to be times when God just steps in. There's a Christian, he's kind of been living, or she's been kind of living this humdrum Christian life for years, and they all of a sudden hear a sermon, or they read a portion of Scripture, or they read a book, and God's Word is seen in a way it's never been seen before, and their whole life is changed. Sometimes it looks like they've had a second conversion. And you see them? They're really different. Now they're coming to prayer meetings and they're, they've got their family together for family devotions. They didn't have that before, but the Lord stepped in and did something. Yes, yes, all, all, all that happens. God's Spirit, what's happened? God's Spirit took the Word of God and opened the eyes up to see the biblical truths that had never been seen before. And he felt the power of that truth working in the life and, and things were changed. Changed. 
And so there's advancement made. I've never forgotten the statement I read years ago about the 59 revival. One of the ministers was in, in, his, in his diary making the comment. He said that Christians advanced more in, in his church. They advanced more in spiritual understanding in six months than they had sitting under his ministry for 20 years. How would you like that one? Six months he saw tremendous changes and he'd been preaching to these same people for 20 years. Those are wonderful times when God advances holiness in the lives of his people and there's no more a humdrum Christianity. That's, that's revival. But brothers and sisters, those times are rare. They are rare. I pray for revival. I pray for personal revival. I pray that God would revive his people. But do you know the bulk of the work of the church has been done, not revival, but all those decades and hundreds of years where God's people just went on and walked in paths of holiness. I fear sometimes that what's wanted, what's wanted is a quick fix. Just send revival, Lord, to fix all our problems. And really there's a... a, a, that, that, that desire and that eagerness and that earnestness to just to walk with God in that path of holy living, that's got to wait till revival comes. We can't expect anything different. Really? Really? Is that, is that the thinking that we've got to have revival before we really get serious about holy living? It's not true. It's not true. The Lord doesn't work that way. Revivals are few and far between. But the path to holiness is there every day for a child of God to walk down. Fourth and finally, we must never think of going down any path to holiness that does not involve a fight, a struggle, a battle. It's God working in us. But we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must. Can I put it like this without you thinking I'm an Arminian? We have to do our part. There's obligations we have. There are things that walking, you know, going down a path means you're doing something. You're walking down a path. There's energy involved in this. There's, there's something that's got to change if you want greater holiness of life and more like Christ and you want to be useful to the Lord. There's something that we have to do and it's going to involve a fight every single day of your Christian life. Every single day there is a battle that we have to fight. And you know where it takes place. You know how it happens in your life. You know where the battles are in your home. And you have to fight them. Why is it that every time we are stirred up to pursue holiness with greater zeal, and we, we know, well, things are going to be different now, that we're going to deal with this idol or that idol in our home, and we're going to deal with the sin that's in our hearts, 
And we're going to deal with our prayerlessness and our lack of time in the Word. We're going to be more faithful. How, why is it every time we find an increased resistance to that from every quarter? Something trying to get... I, 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 I tell you, fact of the matter is, you set out, go away from here today. Things are different, going to be different now. And you watch the resistance you'll face to changing things in your home, in your life. You just watch. That's the last thing Satan wants you to do because he trembles when he sees the wicked sin on his knees. He doesn't want you to pray. He doesn't want you to read the scriptures. He doesn't want you to listen to the sermons that come week by week with your heart and say, Lord, give me a word from my heart today. He doesn't want that. Anything and everything he can do He knows what happens when God's people get earnest about holy living. I am not saying today as I stand here that this congregation is not earnest. I'm not saying that at all. Don't go away from saying that. I am just saying, folks, I know the struggle with sin. I've been on the road a while, and I know you have a struggle with sin just like I do. The Balamina Conference was all about the struggles of God's people. Struggle with faith and unbelief. Struggle with the tongue. Struggle with the thorn in the flesh. Struggle with worry. We all have the struggles. It will be one. So I'm simply saying at the end of this particular message, this road I'm telling you about is not an easy road. It's a narrow road. It requires diligence and striving and mortifying our bodies the crucifying of self, and self does not want to be crucified. It's dealing with our pride, our self-importance, our selfishness, self-centeredness. Fighting the fight, putting on the whole armor of God, all these terms. It's Never think that this is not going to be achieved without a serious fight. For your own soul, for your family, for your children, for your church. God never said it would be easy, but he also said he would never leave us alone in the battle. Now, let me stop before I close and say a word to any who might be here this morning and you're lost. You are not on this path at all. You've never been saved. You've never been born again. You know nothing about an inward desire to be holy, to please the Lord. You know nothing about what it is to hate sin in your heart because Christ lives in you. You're on a path this morning, but it's a path to hell. It's not a path to holiness. You stay on that path, and you know how it's going to end. You can't begin to grasp the misery that you'll meet with in eternity. And it will never end. But there's another path you can take. It's the path that leads to Christ. It's the path that leads to the cross. Only one place to get that sin problem dealt with. And that's the Savior and His death upon the cross who died to bear our sins away. I urge you today, start on that path of holiness 
by getting on that path to Calvary. Bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Eternal God, we thank Thee for Thy presence this Lord's Day morning. We pray that Thou wilt continue to preach on to hearts when the voice of Thy servant is silent. We do pray for that change that we all know we need, that eagerness to be like the Lord. Work mightily, we pray, in our lives and our homes. May this be a time where great groundwork is laid for wonderful, happy transformations. In our Savior's name we pray, amen and amen.